Well, good morning. My heart is so full of praise right now. This is a momentous day in the life and history of this church as we meet here at 401 Terraval. Since 1974, we had been on the corner of Anza and Funston when some faithful saints they gave and purchased and built a worship hall in what originally was the backyard of the house. And for the past 42 years, that house had been a house of worship for many of us over the years. That building had served us so well. But last week, we had our last Sunday service at 498 Funston. And at some point, as it did for many of you, it dawned on me that we wouldn't be there on a Sunday morning to worship the Lord. And in rather respect, there was some sorrow because there are fond memories that we've had as a church on that corner. Some of you were saved there. Lives have been changed. Lifelong friendships were made there. It was a place in which you watched your kids grow up and where you came to know Christ more and begin to really walk with God for the first time a place where we worshipped our Lord together. There have been 10,000 reasons and more that we give thanks to the Lord for being at that place. And in moving here to this corner of 14th and Terrible, things will be different. But we do look forward to forming new memories here. I don't know about you, but there's an excited and also anxious kind of feeling being here. In some ways, for some of you, it feels like the first day of school all over again. You're just trying to figure out parking, and you're finding your new rooms, you're checking out the building. Maybe for some of you, you're picking out your personalized chair that you'll claim for the next 50 years. God has blessed us with this building, and we rejoice in his provision of it, and we celebrate his grace to this church There will be more opportunities for gospel work to be done here in this new community of the city. It really is a dawning of a new era for us. For San Francisco Bible Church, this has been a long time coming. We remember why we're even here. Because we began to outgrow that little house on Anzen Funston. And I was looking through some old emails to get an idea of the timeline of when things really came to a head. It was in July of 2009, I vividly remember this, there were 197 people in the worship hall. We were a total fire hazard. We ran out of seats and we needed to create additional rows that we didn't know that we could. And we busted out those blue and old green chairs. And still, there were people standing against the wall. And it was obvious that we were outgrowing our facility. We eventually said set up an overflow room, and we began to pack that out. We finally made the decision to add an additional service that we thought would be temporary. And, well, we haven't looked back. And during that time, and in God's providence, the elders were informed of a building for sale at what was a very good price at that time. And after a number of meetings and walkthroughs of the building, discussion and counsel and prayer, we believe this building could provide SFBC that much-needed additional space as the congregation grows, as our ministries expand. So we decided to put in a bid to acquire this building. And by God's grace, our bid was accepted. The church vote passed, 
and thus began this process of remodeling an office building for religious assembly, as the city called it. We applied for permits. We took out loans. We raised funds. And some of you, we want to acknowledge you, gave so generously, and you contributed to our building. And only the Lord knows how much you sacrificed. See, but the elders were convinced that if the Lord was to see this project through, it would have to involve each and every one of us to give faithfully, whether in our resources, in prayer, or even in our service. And so many here, you look in the back, they have served so faithfully, particularly this last week. This has been such a gift from the Lord. And through your giving and hard work, through Albert Louis and the building committee, seven years later, this project has come to fruition. We praise God for that. And while these last seven years have seemed so long and continued to have delays and setbacks and interruptions, God was in control. He was sovereign. Because the last seven years hasn't only been a season of waiting, but seven years of the Lord being gracious to our church. See, more important than the work that God was doing in this building was the work that he was doing in our hearts and lives. During this time, the Lord wasn't building a building, but he was building his church. See, it isn't the building, as beautiful as it is, that I want to draw your attention to. It's you. You remember, the building is not the church For much of the last seven years, this has been an empty cave. And the first time it was in any shape, way, or form like a church was when you arrived this morning. See, a church isn't a building. Remember, a church is a gathering of believers. This place could be an apartment building. It could be an office. It could be a community center or anything else. But it isn't a church until you're in it. And when we came here this when he came here this morning, 401 Terravel became a church to the glory of God. So on one hand, the building project is complete. But on the other hand, the building project of this local church, which began in 1964, is unfinished. And it will continue for the remainder of our time here on earth as the Lord tarries. Jesus himself, he makes this great declaration in Matthew 16, 18, where he says that I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. See, he is the master builder and architect and he is engaged in the work of putting up living stones, of growing lives, of expanding ministries and building his church as a result. My question for us is what will this church look like in 10 years, 20, 30, 50, 100 years? We don't know. This this place can be to the glory of God until Jesus comes, or it can depart from that, and who knows what kind of a church it will be, or even what this place will become. There have been buildings that used to be churches, and now they're bars and restaurants and stores. What kind of place will this be in the years that follow? 
I want to tell you the only time the church can ever be what God wants it to be is if it is built God's way with God's plans. Before we built this building, there were many plans, designs, blueprints for this place. And it had to be built according to the plan or would not have been what it was supposed to be. And that is true of the church. See, God has laid down a plan for the church. And it raises the question, what is that blueprint that we can follow so that Jesus can build his church his way? I believe it's found in Acts chapter 2. And that is our text for this morning. And if you have your Bibles, please turn to Acts 2. And it is there that I want to introduce you to the first church in history. This was the church that Jesus built on the day of Pentecost. It was a growing and thriving and authentic church of believers. This was a church that Jesus built his way. And it continues to serve as the model for our church this very day as we inaugurate our service and ministry here at 401 Terrell. And so we look to it this morning. And we find specifically three characteristics of what the church must be committed to if the Lord is to build it according to his plan. Before we get into the text of God's word, let's commit our time in prayer and let's ask for his help. Father, we thank you for the great privilege it is to gather here together as a church body to meet at this place. Lord, we know that this was made possible only because of your son, Jesus Christ, who shed his blood on the cross for our sin. May we not take that lightly. And so, Lord, we come before you now as we hear your word. We pray that you would speak to us and minister to every heart here and change lives, Lord, to your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Firstly, if you're taking notes, we find the church must be committed to the teaching of God's word. In the book of Acts, we are in the time of Pentecost. Christ has ascended, the Spirit's power has come, and a miraculous revival takes place. Where Peter, he proclaims the gospel message to the Jews, and 3,000 came to faith in Christ that day and were baptized. Immediately, these 3,000 joined together to form what we know as the first church of the New Testament. But you notice this. The first thing that Luke writes of concerning these believers was what? In verse 42, we find, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Of all the things that could be characterized about this church, in the time of Pentecost, no less, where miracles were performed, signs and wonders of God were seen at a time when the sick were healed, the lame walked, the blind could see, the demons cast out, when revivals happened and people were being saved by the thousands, when there was prophecy, tongues, and visions, and all these manifestations of the Spirit's power. It could easily have been a temptation for these early believers to see these things And say, Lord, we want to see more of the miraculous. Yet instead, this isn't what we see. 
They didn't focus on externals. They didn't focus on experience. They didn't focus on spiritual highs. No, they focused on teaching. This was the priority for the church, and it is ours. It is a devotion to the teaching of God's word. See, teaching always comes first, and only when it does will it give life and spill over to all other aspects of the church, just as it did with the first church. The teaching of the word of God was central to the ministry of the early church. The apostles' ministry of preaching and teaching is mentioned more than any other activity in which they were engaged in. There are no less than 14 references to their teaching in the book of Acts. No matter where they were, these apostles were preaching. Whether in Solomon's temple, in public gatherings, before the Sanhedrin, or from house to house, in danger of their lives, they boldly taught in the name of Christ. Even when the demands of the ministry grew in Acts 6, they would not be sidetracked by their central task of teaching. They declared that it was not desirable for us to neglect the word of God. And so they created the office of the diaconate, of deacons, to serve the needs of the church so that they might give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And later on in the church... And all throughout Paul's letters, he gives instruction similarly to teach the church in sound doctrine and not to teach difficult doctrine or different doctrine, 1 Timothy 1, to pay attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, 1 Timothy 4, to preach the word in season and out, 2 Timothy 4, to speak and exhort and reprove with all authority, Titus 2. See, there was clearly an emphasis on teaching in the church. And as the apostles taught this first flock, what they were doing was they were simply following what they had seen Jesus do. For more than three years, they had been directly taught by the master teacher himself and had witnessed his public ministry. He would leave a deep impression of the central place of teaching to his disciples. And so these disciples, as they're beginning their pastoral work in shepherding the first church, what would they do? Teach. They were merely imitating what they had seen Jesus do in their lives. As it was for them, that's what we seek to do at this church. This is our conviction. The ministry of the word is our focus here in this church. It's not everything, as we'll discover, but it starts here. And this has been the legacy of this church for many years. And so you'll find verse by verse expositional preaching of God's word here. You'll find teaching in Sunday school classes and in fellowship groups. You'll find Bible studies amongst the saints. We are San Francisco Bible Church, is what you're going to get. We want to be a Bible teaching church. But the question is, why? Why is this sort of priority given to it? Surely, 
It must be more than just because the apostles did it. Why is teaching God's word to be central within the church? Why should this be our first and foremost commitment here at SFBC? Because this book right here is the word of God. See, there is power in this book. This book is supernatural. This book is living and active. This book cuts to the heart. This book gives life. This book has broken men and women, have changed lives, and continues to shape and fashion us to grow into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We need it in our lives. There's a great illustration the power of God's word that is found in Ezekiel 37. And I want for you to turn there. Ezekiel 37. If you're looking for it, we have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Then Daniel is the book right after. But we find in Ezekiel 37, this vision of Ezekiel and the dry bones. And to set the context for where we are, the Lord He brings Ezekiel in this vision to an entire valley of bones stretched and scattered across the land. And the Lord tells Ezekiel, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord and they will live. And so Ezekiel responds in obedience to this vision. And we pick it up in verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. What a vision. God is describing the deadness of the house of Israel. And he declares to this dead house that he will put his spirit in Israel so that it will live. But how? How does he do this? By his word. Through that preaching of the word came life to these bones. Understand that correlation. God always brings life through his word. God spoke into the void and created the universe by the power of his word. God makes those dead in sin alive in Christ through the word. God, he reaches down and removes our stony hearts and he puts in us new fleshly hearts that love him and has affections for him and has new passions for him. And how does that happen? Through the word. It has always been through the word of God. See, through this book, we meet with God. 
There is an encounter that happens. And as such, you cannot be unaffected when you meet with the living God who speaks to you. Time and again, we have seen lives transformed by the word. And that's what's happening every time that we come before the teaching of the scriptures. If you're to grow in faith, to be mature men and women, to be those who please God in your life, it begins and ends with God's word. For those who want to be changed, you want to be different. You want to overcome sin in your life. You want to be more like our Savior. You want to be that man or woman or that husband and wife that God wants you to be. You need God's word that transforms us and sanctifies us. See, that is why we have so much preaching and why we're not here to make you feel good or entertain you. We're here to give you the word because you cannot grow apart from it. You're not growing through activities and just singing songs and entertainment or even serving. If you are not in God's word, if you do not read it or study it, if you're not listening and learning from your teachers, You are not growing. You maybe look at where you're at. And that is why some Christians have not grown up and are as mature as they should be despite being in the faith for a long time because there has been no devotion to the word. It burdens me. When I look at the church today in the States, And believers don't seem to have an appetite for the word of God. There is a lack of knowledge and desire among Christians regarding scripture. And it's fostered a low view of God's word. And I want to tell you that we're not immune to it. It's why so often believers will come to church and they begin to complain about the teaching. The preaching is too long. I don't like that preacher's style. This sermon is boring. This isn't relevant. There aren't enough stories. I didn't feel engaged. It doesn't relate to what I'm going through. There's too much Bible. See, they'll come with preferences and expectations and conditions before the word of God. And they tune it out we find that their hearts are cold to it. And despite every available resource to them, they show there is no commitment to the word. It burdens me. Because in contrast, I see that those who are most devoted to God's word are those who have little accommodated for. They are those believers who live in these third world countries where they have no resources where there is a famine in the land of biblical teaching, and yet they will do anything to satisfy their hunger for it. And I witnessed witnessed this firsthand. Two summers ago, as you know, I went on a missions trip to Uganda with my wife, Carissa, and Helen. We partnered with Lighthouse Community Church in Torrance. And our team of six had the opportunity to serve at an orphanage to evangelize in the villages, to teach and encourage our sister Kim. This trip, more than anything else, provided an avenue for us to show mercy and to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
But I had the unique opportunity to teach a Bible conference during our time there. And so we drove several hours away through the rural roads of Uganda to a building in one of the neighboring villages. And there we met with a group of 20 or so primarily church leaders. It's hard for us to imagine a context where there is no access to the internet, to supplemental resources, to quality biblical training. But these men and women had nothing beyond their very own Bibles. And so when they heard that a conference was being organized and a couple of random Americans were there to teach God's word, they committed to come from all over. Some took the day off work and sacrificed the $2 a day wage they made just to be there. Others took a two-hour trip by boat from the islands to join us. Several others walked great distances to come. And from the afternoon and into the night, we gathered in this run-down building. And for six hours, we taught them the word. And they couldn't get enough. They couldn't hide their excitement as they were learning truth. And some of these things for the first time in their Bibles. And they were asking question after question. It was an experience that my friend Brian and I will never forget. But there was a snapshot of this moment that has never left me. Here was this group of young and old in this run-down building. And they're sitting there, lined shoulder to shoulder, huddled together with their worn-down, tattered Bibles in hand. And one single candle is lit as a source of illumination as we taught into the night and as they listened. No light fixtures, no sound system, no band, no cushioned chairs, no heated or air-conditioned building, nothing except the Word of God. That was all they wanted. That was enough for them. His word is enough for millions of believers who gather in house churches just like that one. His word is enough for millions of other believers huddled in African jungles, in South American rainforests, in secret within Middle Eastern cities. But the question is, Is his word enough for us? Do you love God's word like that? Is that the longing of your heart? Are you committed to the teaching of God's word in this way where week in and week out you come before Sunday morning and his teaching in this way? And I know some of you are. I've personally seen your commitment to the word of God. And we praise God for you. And I want to believe that most of you are here because you know God, you love him, and you desire to hear from his word. It's why some of you have come to this church. It's why we have grown considerably over the years. It's why we even needed a new building. Because you long for the word. I know that. 
But I encourage you to continue to cultivate this devotion to the teaching of the word. Believers are to be marked by this hunger for God's word. And if you're not there, realize that this takes place. This doesn't just happen automatically. It takes intentionality. It takes preparation for us to continue to grow in this. Remember, Sunday morning worship begins when? Saturday night. You sleep early so that you don't have to sleep in service. It's more comfortable. Spend time in preparing your heart. Come with a humble and teachable spirit, expecting God to speak to you through his word in ways that will make a lasting difference in your life. When you come before his word this morning, you must be concerned about only one thing. What does God have to say to me? And again, we focus on God. Don't come here being critical. Don't seek for a certain standard. Don't seek for preferences from your teachers. But seek instead for the pure milk of God's word, whoever is at the pulpit and whoever is teaching. How the church will continue to grow and be built up by Christ is through means of our commitment to the teaching of the word. That has been God's plan for his church from the very beginning. It is to be a biblical church. That is what we strive to be. Turn back to Acts chapter 2, and we see secondly that the church must also be committed to fellowship. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Fellowship. The Greek word is koinonia. You may have heard that word before, and while it can be translated partnership, it essentially has the idea of sharing in common. And it speaks to a fellowship, a communion, a participation between one another. And this common thing that that we share is our faith in Christ. The Bible teaches that when we became Christians, we entered into a partnership or fellowship in Christ. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9, 1, 9, that we were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. See, what the apostle is saying is that what happens at salvation is that through the gospel, sinners are not only being reconciled to God, they're also being reconciled to each other and called into a new fellowship. You were called into a partnership, a communion, a common spiritual life with other believers. Through what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross, where he lived and died for the sins of all people, he brought us together through faith in him. And this is the beauty of the body of Christ, that people now from all walks of life and different backgrounds and diversity can come together in unity of faith because of what Jesus has done. You think about this, even among the early groups of believers, you have a fisherman, a tax collector, a zealot, a couple of hotheads, a doubter. Later on, you would have a former Pharisee and persecutor of the church, a murderer, a magician, a eunuch, a businesswoman, a slave girl, former demoniacs to Jews, Samaritans, and even Gentiles. 
This early church would include all people from all places of life. See, there was little to bring them together by worldly standards. They would not be hanging out in the same crowds out there. There was little in common between those in this church. Because it was Jew and Gentile, men and women, rich and poor. But they had one great thing in common. It was Koinonia. They had fellowship, a partnership in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This brought them together. It was what unified them. And it is such a beautiful sight when we see the reality of this. And we see a semblance of diversity in the body of Christ because it really captures the heart of what Koinonia is all about. We can look so different. We can be people who don't have much in common. We can have different personalities and different interests. For some of us, we would not have been friends outside of here or been a part of the same circle if we were in high school together. But something transcends all of that. Our hearts have been knit together through faith in Christ. And we have koinonia. And when the Bible speaks of koinonia, it's not just a name, but it extends into practice. It's this idea that we're to be a part of the lives of other believers within the church. Koinonia is not just to attend church, but to be involved, to be committed to it and communing and developing relationship with other believers. See, our faith as God has designed it was never intended to be lived out on its own. We are not to be on a spiritual island. There are no lone rangers In the Christian faith, we are never allowed to say, but, you know, I'm at least growing in my personal relationship with God. I'm doing my devotions. I'm serving, and I don't need to be involved in the church. Our faith is always to be grown in the context of fellowship. God has called every member to a life committed to building up the church through the practice of the one another's in the New Testament. What are these one another's that I'm speaking of? There are 59 commands that are found in the New Testament of how we relate to each other, praying for one another, loving one another, forgiving one another, reproving one another, building one another up, restoring one another, and more. And these are not suggestions. These are commands. Are you doing them? It's in doing these things we help each other grow in faith as we share life together in the body of Christ. We see the early church was committed to the practicing of these one another's. Look at verse 44. And this is what we're told about them. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. At the time, Jews from every nation had been visiting Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And when many heard the gospel for the first time and they came to faith, they remained in Jerusalem to be part of the church. But many of them were without jobs. They were without homes. Some now were without family. 
They had made the great sacrifice to follow Christ and to be a part of his body. And in their time of need, these other believers sold property and possessions and gave to those in need. They opened their homes and resources to those of the faith. See, in their struggle, other believers walked with them, loved them, served them. And I believe that was just one example of what it means to have fellowship. But realize the greater principle in all of this was that they were part of their lives. This is what we're called to. Let me ask, are you involved in the lives of the people here? Again, not simply just to attend church. Do you have fellowship? Do you have brothers and sisters in Christ that are close to you? Do you know some and how they're doing spiritually? Do you know what the person sitting around you and the people sitting around you are struggling with? And how you can be praying for them? What are needs that they have that you might be able to meet for them? What are ways that you can be encouraging them? What is a timely word that you can speak to them? What are burdens that they have in which you can bear? These are concerns that you are commanded and called to have toward other Christians in the church. That's fellowship. And some of you may realize that you don't have it. See, I think at times we loosely use the term of fellowship. We, we have fellowship together or we have fellowship groups and we minimize fellowship and we've made it to be more socially oriented and not faith oriented. I'm saddened to say that many churches that I've been a part of the, or that I've visited are these sort of country clubs that exist. It becomes just a time of hanging out and socializing and everything is superficial about it. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily bad because it's good to have that. But understand that just because a group of believers gather together, it doesn't always qualify as fellowship in a biblical sense. And for years in my faith, I didn't have this. But in college, I had the opportunity to meet together with a few brothers to share with, to pray with, to encourage and admonish and edify one another. There was this genuine fellowship that I had for the first time. And I'll never forget it. It was just so sweet. We talked about the sins that we struggled with and things that God was teaching us. We were sharing about how God has been at work in our lives. We would affirm evidences of grace in other people in the church and our ministries. And we testified to how good that God is. We rebuked one another when we needed to be rebuked. But there was something about our time together where I walked away from our fellowship and I wanted to be more like Christ because of them. These were brothers of mine that I had and I have this very day where they make me want to be more like Jesus because of how they lived. That's fellowship. Do you have someone like that? 
Are you that someone who causes others to want to be more like Jesus? I pray there will be people here in this group who can impact you in that way, who can sharpen you through the word and through their lives, they can sharpen you. Lord willing, that there will be people who you can take the initiative to spend time with and you can be intentional and you make it God-centered and you're there to comfort each other, to speak words of encouragement and showing the love of Christ to each other. And the best part is, as you get close to good brothers and sisters in Christ, this begins to happen naturally. Would SFBC have such deep and meaningful relationships in that way? And it is through this that God can build his church and make it holy and pure. So the church must be committed to the teaching of God's word must be committed to fellowship, and lastly, it must be committed to worship. Look at verse 42 again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Go down to verse 46. And day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Worship was the underlying characteristic of this church. This church displayed acts of worship from the breaking of bread to prayer, to fellowship, to going to the temple to evangelize. All these things encompassed worship. But you notice they didn't do these things mechanically. They didn't just go through the motions of it. No one said that they did it joyfully, with glad hearts and with praise. See, their acts of worship were a response to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Everything they did and how they did it was within the context of what had just happened before. What happened? You look back to chapter 2 and verse 22. In chapter 2, verse 22, Peter was preaching to these unbelieving Jews here. And he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter is preaching to them the gospel, and now their response to verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were caught. It said they were pierced to the heart. And then verse 41, so those who had received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. See, their worship was a response to the gospel they heard. The apostle Peter preached that Christ had died for their sin. And as they heard this, they came to conviction. They knew without exception that we had sinned and broken God's law. 
And because God is holy and just, he must judge us for our sin. We were to be condemned to an eternal hell. But the gospel message they heard was that in God's great love, and it says according to his great plan, this Jesus of Nazareth was given up as a sacrifice for our sin. He went to the cross and died, bearing God's wrath in our place so that our debt might be paid. And it said that God raised him from the dead. Peter tells us that Christ couldn't be held down by it. And this risen Savior that he proclaimed now extends salvation and forgiveness to all sinners who come to faith in him. And so they did. But why does God do this? Why does he do this for us in the gospel? So that he might be worshipped. Our Lord is saving a people to himself that they might worship him. And this is exactly what these people did. As they came to faith, they responded the only way they could, and that was with worship to God. There is always this relationship between the gospel and our worship. Evangelism and missions exist because worship to God doesn't. As we consider the goodness of God to us in our salvation, it invokes worship. And that is how God has always designed it. Worship is simply to ascribe worth. And in light of the cross, those things that we once desired more than God, we begin now to reassign as ultimate worth and value to God. We recognize that amidst everything in this world that we live for, that God is of utmost value. He is our treasure. He is more precious than gold and silver and all things. See, the gospel has changed everything. Because the trajectory of our lives, our purpose, our destiny is now different. And all of life now is about worship to God that begins in this life and extends for all of eternity. See, this is the purpose for our gatherings and our ministries. We are participating and engaging in something that we will do fully and perfectly and sinlessly in heaven one day. So that whether we break bread and pray and fellowship and sing and evangelize, each time we meet, we are ascribing worth for who God is as the great God that he is. And we now live our lives in accordance to his worth. In short, if I could summarize this, it's not about you. It's about God. If we meet, and when we meet, it's not about our expectations and preferences being met about the music, the preaching, and how people are. And even this building that you see, and you might say it doesn't really meet your standard. It's not about how the church accommodates for us. It's not even about what I got out of surface. It's about what you gave 
to God. The question that I ask is, why are you here this morning? Why do you sing these songs? Why do you listen to some guy preach for an hour? This is an important question that you have to ask yourself each time you come. Because we know coming to church can grow to be so routine for us all. And all the while, as we're here, we forget why we do what we do. is to worship God. Our worship is a celebration of who God is and what Christ has accomplished for us. Our lives and our gatherings here must proclaim that it is about God. Let us never lose our way from this as we commence our ministry here at 401 Terraville. You look at this place. You see this place. We are reaping the fruits of the past generation who sacrificed, labored, and gave, and some of whom never got to see this building. In so many ways, this building is a stewardship that we might spread the glory of Jesus Christ in the gospel. It is a gift from God. But remember, God will use people, not merely the building. This building tells people there is a church here. But it's the people that tells them that there is a great God here. Would we be that church where people would leave here not saying, what a great building. What a great people. What a great ministry. But let them leave here saying, what a great God. That must be our commitment for this next season of ministry here at this corner of 14th and Terraville to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that we can meet in this place, that we can call our new home. And in many ways, it is a testament to your faithfulness over the course of the 50-plus years to San Francisco Bible Church. So, Lord, we pray that you would continue to do your great work through us as we win souls for Christ and worship you in this place for this next season. Our desire is to see you build your church and to do it according to your plans. And so, Lord, keep us faithful as we proclaim in word and deed that you are worthy of our lives in worship. That is our heart's desire, that we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the master, the head, the cornerstone, and the builder of this church. Amen.